0: Before I read the next thing I want to read today, I want to tell you, and I think everybody here is aware of this, it's no surprise to you, that um, the sermons that I preach are not your general, you know, in other words, there's a couple different ways of handling sermons. One of them, this is a Latin phrase, I don't mean to sound official or anything, but there's one called Lectio Selecta, which means selecting the lecture. That would be more of a topical type of sermon that somebody does. You know, We've got a problem with uh, uh, families, so we're going to do a sermon on families. Or we have a problem with our children, so we're going to do a a sermon on children. And that's good in one way, it's bad in one way. Um, It can become a point of, I have a problem in the congregation and I'm going to address it directly through my sermon. And that may or may not affect people properly. Um, Then you have... a good thing is that people do have these needs in their lives and um, they, it, it's edifying to listen to somebody speak about a particular problem that you may have in your life. And I've thought a lot about should I do that as a preacher and or is it within me to do that as a preacher? And it's really not. Instead, I would rather personally follow what is known as lectio continua, which means to continue with a particular idea. In the concept of that idea being the Bible, it would be beginning with the beginning and just going through until you come to a happy resolution at Revelation 22. And um, there's no right way, there's no wrong way, there's good and there's bad. Uh, The way that I preach, you all know, is a little technical. Most people, I don't think, find that as stimulating as going and listening to somebody preach something happy and uplifting all the time. But uh, we finished up the book of Revelation in our Bible class this morning, and instead of finishing on a very high note it was almost a downer uh some of the points i brought up because uh along with the good is always bad and as pat said you know after the class i was talking to her and uh, i said if you preach about just the love of god or uplifting things all the time and i didn't even finish the sentence she said it's lopsided in other words we have to have the fullness of god explained or our perceptions of who this creator is and what he expects of us is lopsided and so uh, i'm going to continue doing it this way as long as i can and i would like to plead to you that if there is anybody that you know that you believe would be built up by a lectio continua or a continuing series of lectures from genesis through the bible that is my hope and my desire and i would ask if you know people that uh, you think would benefit from that please invite them because as people leave we have paul and uh, elaine who have left we've got some other people that have uh, you know simply stop coming because of work or other things in their lives that they've decided um, the numbers do generally go down and I, it, it isn't a pride thing with me but I would like to see the numbers come up rather than go down so please keep that in mind and uh, if you're blessed by these things then that's great um, I, I, it means a great deal to me to preach and it's the one thing that I want to do for the rest of my life but I do have other options in life I can always go back and be in wastewater or, the uh, administration I did for nine years. Um, so, but it is my heart and desire to preach God's word and to preach it in its fullness. And the reason why I'm giving you this today is because today we are going to be speaking on the line of Cain, which is um, Genesis four. It's the second half of it. We explained Cain killed Abel. And, you know, that's kind of depressing in and of itself doing a sermon on the murdering of somebody. But uh, we're gonna get into something that is technical and confusing. But there is what is called in the Bible progressive revelation in other words god progressively reveals himself to us he shows himself from the beginning as the creator and slowly why things have happened and how they lead in a natural way to our need for a redeemer and it's just it's not just a one-time thing it's there's a lesson in adam there's a lesson after the flood there's a lesson in the law of moses and each one of these things is leading us inexorably to jesus christ and to me it's just only natural to want to explain that entire process and uh, a man that I know that used to preach at the tabernacle he preached for 37 years he started with Genesis and it took him those 37 years to get to Revelation and um, he demonstrated how that works and he was very effective at what he did but uh, I know he doesn't regret a bit of it now that he sits in his chair and he has Alzheimer's and he shakes and uh, but that was his life's desire was to preach the bible in its fullness and he said that in his congregation people would say well i started with the book of esther and it became almost not a point of pride but a point of reference of when they came into his congregation you know i started in the psalms i started in nehemiah and each person had that in them and it became something that they didn't want to miss a week because it was the progressive revelation of god that was coming open so i just wanted to explain that to you in advance before we get into cain because uh, the line of cain because it is To me, it's very interesting. I mean, I love this kind of stuff, but I want to explain why I'm doing this to you, and I may do this from time to time. I have two things to read before we get started. Uh, The first one is something I haven't read in a little while, but it's meaningful, very meaningful to me, and I know it's meaningful to Pat, and uh, it's basically where we got the name of where we're at. We call it the Green Cathedral. It's from a a, uh, hymn that was written many, many years ago, back in the 1800s, and here's how it goes. The Green Cathedral... I know a green cathedral, a shadowed forest shrine, where leaves in love join hands above and arch your prayers and mine. Within its cool depths sacred, the priestly cedars sigh, and the fir and pine lift arms divine unto the pure blue sky. In my dear green cathedral there is a flowered seat, and choir loft and branched croft with songs of uh, bird hymns sweet. And I like to dream it, even when the stars its arches light, that my Lord and God treads its hallowed sod in the cool, calm peace of night, that my Lord and God treads its hallowed sod in the cool, calm peace of night, so wonderful words from somebody that obviously knew his creator and uh, i 'd like to go ahead and read you very quickly. I look for this, I found it, and then I closed my Bible so i 've got to uh, interrupt our thought for a minute i'm looking for the book of two james i'm sorry two john today and uh very short little book in the back of the bible i think most of you have probably read this but it's uh, good to remind yourself of these things the elder to the elect lady and her children whom i love in truth and not only i but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, You should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having made many things to write you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words of John and thank you for the words of the entire Bible that give us hope, that give us soundness of life and, uh, Uh, the ability to persevere under hard times and to know right from wrong. And thank you for unveiling it to us in a way that we can comprehend and we can study for the rest of our lives, even comprehending it and still learn more. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We love you and we praise you. And you know, Lord, that there are many prayer needs out here. We have Paul and Elaine who have safely arrived in Japan and they need our prayers as they uh, minister to the Japanese people in the months ahead. We pray for Sergio who is uh, facing his own trial right now and for uh, Sergio and Rhoda as they travel to Tampa. I ask that you take them there safely and bring him home safely and take her safely to Israel to see her mother and her family. And Lord, you know that there are many other prayer requests that we have. We have people with uh, trying times in their own physical nature, trying times in their financial being or in their spiritual walk with you. We have people that are hurting, that are not confessing to us their hurts, but they know that you know that they have these in their life. And I would ask that you look down, reach down into each one of these souls and cure them and give them healing. Linda's knee is bothering her and I ask that you give her uh, comfort in her knee until she can get and have her knees replaced so that we'll be joyfully watching her do handsprings here one of these days in the near future. We thank you for all these things and we pray for them because you're a loving God who does reach down and touch our lives and our souls. We thank you for that. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And I think everybody here has been baptized, but don't forget that we uh, have that option available all the time right out here, lots of water. And um, uh, once again, I do want to thank the musicians. And uh, Angelica, that song was just gloriously wonderful today. I thank you very much for it. And uh, I just uh, uh, thank Jim for coming out and backing her up and keeping these things going. And uh, I just appreciate everybody here. So today we're gonna speak about the line of Cain. This is Genesis 4, 17 through 26. And when we study this, I'm gonna explain this in the sermon obviously, but when we study it on our own, we may say, well, why is this even in here? Because it doesn't lead to Jesus. And you're going to see, not today specifically, but in the next two sermons, if you're here, how they actually tie together. The line of Cain is here for a very important reason. And in particular, there's one name in here, which is is almost confusing. Why would this person even be mentioned? And we're not gonna find out until later. And I will repeat that again. But uh, I just wanted to highlight that to you to keep you from falling asleep and maybe paying attention to what's going on here because as tedious as some of this is gonna sound, it actually serves a purpose as God's unfolding revelation to us in the pages of the Bible. While we're here, though, looking at the line of Cain, we should probably address one of the age-old questions that people love to try to stump other people over. And the question is, where did Cain get his wife? Now, some of you have probably seen the movie Inherit the Wind. I watched it with my wife. It has Spencer Tracy, and you know that this question was brought up in that movie, Inherit the Wind. The movie is a take on the Scopes Monkey Trial, which many of you know it was something that uh, challenged Christianity against evolution and uh, how that worked out well. If you've never seen this particular movie, Inherit the Wind, don't bother. It is, in my opinion, it is a pathetic attempt at making Christians look stupid, making them look bigoted and close-minded. From the very first scene in the movie, you've got these Christians that are marching down the road with their signs and they're singing this song, give me that old time religion, it's good enough for me, indicating that they, they're in their closed little minds and they're not willing to reach out beyond it. And all the way to the last clips of the movie, it is an all out attack on the Christian message. During the trial, there's a defense attorney who is played by Spencer Tracy, and he gets the prosecutor, who is a guy named Brady, on the stand. One commentary says this about the movie, Brady's confidence in his biblical knowledge is so great that he welcomes this challenge, but he becomes flustered under Drummond's cross-examination, unable to explain certain apparent contradictions until Drummond hammers his point home that Cates, like any other man, demands the right to think for himself. The questions that fluster Brady include this particular question, where did Cain get his wife? When he's asked this, he incompetently, he gasps and he starts to sweat at the immense difficulty of what he's been presented, as if it's too deep for the human mind to comprehend. The guy is on the stand and he's portrayed as a completely bumbling, arrogant, and closed-minded person. He's a self-deluded soul. And that's exactly what they want you to perceive of Christians. And people ever since this movie, and probably before that, have tried to appear smart by asking the question, where did Cain get his wife? As if nobody has able, been able to uh, find an answer to this particularly difficult question since then. In fact, though, whether you believe in evolution or whether you believe in creation, you come up with exactly the same problem. The only difference is that evolution cannot properly identify the solution. Any evolutionary answer from that original question would lead, believe it or not, to devolution. It would not lead to evolution, but they will. Work around that, and not let you know that that's the absolute truth of the matter. The biblical answer, however, is found in chapter five, which we're going to look at next week. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. We have. No idea if Cain was the firstborn child of Adam or not. In fact, some scholars believe that the terminology at Cain's birth indicates that girls were born first. Here's what Albert Barnes says about the particular issue. If she, meaning Eve, had daughters before and saw them growing up to maturity, this would explain her expectation and at the same time give a new significance and emphasis to her exclamation. I have gained a man, heretofore only women, from Yahweh." So girls could have been born first, no problem there. And we have no idea at all if girls were born between Cain and between Abel. One thing we are sure of though, is that Adam had sons and daughters, besides the three of them, Cain, Abel, and Seth, all right? In 930 years, he could have had a bunch. If Eve had twins or triplets or quadruplets, they could have had a heap of them. I mean, poor Eve in this context. And each of these children could have had their own children during those 930 years of Adam. They could potentially then have led to a an immense multitude of people on the earth in that first generation from the time that Adam was created to the time that Adam died. There is no restriction levied on marrying brothers and sisters or uncles and aunts or cousins or anything else in the Bible until the law of Moses. And in fact, Abraham, who was only 430 years before the law, and he was 1950 years after creation, married his own half-sister. And no negative comment is made about that in the Bible, It's except it is completely normal. The gene pool back then would have been much, much stronger. In fact, it would have been whoppingly strong compared to what it is today. And intermarrying like this would have been no problem at all. So the great unanswerable question of where did Cain get his wife isn't unanswerable at all. He got her from the daughters of Adam. So there you go, Spencer Tracy. Our text verse today is this. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. So may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. The first thought today is a descent into wickedness. Verse 17, and Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city, and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mehujael, and Mehujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Although we don't see it yet, the genealogy we just read will lead to a division between the godly line of Seth, who will be born later and the line of Cain. The godly line remains in the presence of the Lord and in his plans and purposes. They are centered on the creator. They are centered on the worship of God. But eventually even the line of Cain, which is this God Cain, I'm sorry, Seth, which is this godly line which comes from Adam through Seth will eventually corrupt until the point where the whole world including them have to be destroyed except for one man, his three sons, his wife, and their three wives, eight people in all, and they are left to repopulate the world. The line of wickedness, though, from Cain down, even from the beginning, is removed from the presence of the Lord. If you remember the curse of Cain, Cain was removed from, he says, you shall be removed from the presence of the Lord, you'll be a wanderer on the earth, etc. Their line is centered on worldly things, the things that we tend to cherish in this life like nice cars and things these things aren't explicitly stated though i want you to know that they're inferred from the structure of the verses as they're given and the placement of these particular verses verses 17 through 26 in the overall account along with comments which are made later in the bible all right in the last sermon we read these words then cain went out from the presence of the lord and dwelt in the land of nod on the east of eden And believe it or not, as I said last week, this is the exact same area in the world where even 6,000 years later, it is the place where the main opposition to God and his people, the chosen people of Israel, is lined up against today. What is right and godly is here, and what is in the east is this same area where Cain was banished to. After Cain found his supposedly unfindable wife, he bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, which is Enoch. The word for city here is the word ur, er, and this specifically is a city with walls constructed around it as a defense or a barricade. So in essence, the walls themselves are the city, and everything else inside of that city is simply there because of the per- protection that those walls provided each type of city in the Bible has a different meaning the word ur is a barricaded city Cain in essence had separated himself from anyone who could harm him if you remember he was worried about being killed for killing his own brother so he had separated himself from them but he had also separated himself from any positive influence that could come into the city in effect he was shut out shut out from the very presence of the Lord in effort in an effort to secure himself And we can see a parallel in human history in the Chinese society when they built the Great Wall. They were this highly developed society, eventually they degraded to the point where people had to go in and actually help them to come up to the levels which had gone on outside of the walls of China. So you can see that type of parallel there. The name of Cain's son is Enoch, and that particular name means dedicated. It can also mean something else though, which is teaching, and we'll see that coming up in the next chapter chapter five of the bible but in this context it's probable that Cain was thinking of dedication and the reason why is because his son was born at the time that he built his city and so he dedicated his son's name and the city at the same time that's why we can infer that that is what he intended when he named his particular son Enoch dedicated he did this instead of also naming it after himself because the cursed name of cain would not be an ideal name for starting out a new life so he deferred to the dedication of his son and his city rather than naming it after himself after cain and enoch the bible records four more people in this line before we come to a group of people these four people here's what it says to enoch was born Irad. Irad begat Mahujael. Mahujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. We should note that two of the names of Cain's descendants are the same as the names of two of the descendants of Seth that we're going to look at next week in chapter 5. But just as there are good people and bad people with the same names, so there were good people and bad people named with these names all the way back at the beginning. In the Bible, we have the wicked name of Judas, but we also have the good name of Judas, or Jude, who was the Lord's brother and wrote the 65th book of the Bible. They're the same people with the same name, but the wicked Judas is known as the son of perdition. This is a term that's used only one other time in the entire Bible, and it is speaking of the Antichrist. So the name Judas is normally synonymous with somebody wicked, but we have a good Judas as well. Actually, there's two of them in the Bible. When we get to chapter five, we will read the genealogy of Adam through Seth down to Noah. But unlike that genealogy, this one is strikingly short. Everything that I read you of those, those four people, that's all that's recorded of them. It lacks any commentary and it lacks any ancestral information. Yes, in fact, these people really did exist, but their lives were unimportant to the greater plan of redemption. Instead, they are souls that are remembered without delight in the Bible. One thing that we should probably ask about our own selves, though, is how will I be remembered? The Bible is written. There isn't any more room for our names to be inserted into it. But even the Old Testament in the book of Malachi tells us that our lives and our deeds do not go unrecorded. Here's what it says to be remembered by God for a faithful life. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine says the Lord of hosts on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So while we're pondering the life of Cain and his generations that were swept away in the flood, we should take to heart that God remembers those who meditate on his name. And I was thinking about that as I was typing it up here and reflecting on over the week is that what is it that you do with your creator each and every day? Do you get up and do you actually meditate on his name? When you're driving, do you think about God? When you're looking out over a scene like this beautiful beach today, do you think about how God set those pelicans in the sky just for our pleasure and how everything fits together perfectly? This is the kind of thing that we need to think on in our own lives and meditate on how the creator has done this for us and then thank him for each and every good thing that he has done for us this is meditating on the name of the lord the only other thing that i can add of any substance though of the names of the people of cain's descendants is that two of them include the name l at the end of the name l is the word for god all right so the name Mahujael means smitten by god and the name methusheel means who is of god forever it's worth for whatever it's worth, man, even man who lives apart from God in a captive city has a sense and a knowledge of the God who created him. Eventually though, even this will disappear when people move from a godly-centered life to a humanistic or idol-centered approach to life. In modern society, we are moving in exactly that same direction as they did. We're paying lip service to the name of God, but we are denying his character and we are denying his sovereign authority. And we need to make sure that we as Christians don't do that, that we hold on closely to the name of God and not just simply pay lip service to him. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is the worldly man. The Bible contrasts people in various ways and often what is commented on as notable, such as Abraham and his sons living in tents is notable for the ideas that they held in that context there's nothing inherently wrong with living in cities. In other words, here's what it says about Abraham from Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive his inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. These men were told that they would live as strangers in the land and that only later, only later would their descendants inherit the land. In obedience to this, they continued to live in tents. Now, if they were never to possess the land that they hoped for, and yet they hoped for a city with foundations, then it ought to be obvious that what they hoped for was something eternal. It was not something that would be grasped in this life. These verses are descriptive in nature. In other words, they only describe what a particular situation was and why it was notable. They do not prescribe anything for us, such as living in tents. Instead, they provide a moral lesson on what's important and not specifically on where we should live, but how we should conduct our lives. So please don't go selling your houses to go live in tents. Paul himself was a tent maker, but that doesn't mean anything beyond the fact that Paul made tents, and it's important to understand this, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to divert from the line of Cain for a minute, and I want to give you a few rules about how you should study your Bible. In fact, I'm going to give you five things that I would like you to remember, and I'm doing this for a very specific reason today. The first reason is, or the first thing you should consider while you're studying your Bible is, is this descriptive? In other words, does it describe something? The second thing is, is this prescriptive? Does this actually prescribe something for me to do? And lastly, what is the context? If you can remember those five things, then your understanding will be greatly enhanced as you read the Bible. But Charlie, you only gave us three things. What, have you been drinking too much mango juice again? The answer is that I did give you five things to think about and you didn't pay attention. Is it descriptive? Is it prescriptive? And what is the context? See, five things. I just didn't elaborate on them. Descriptive, prescriptive, and context, context, context. Never take a verse or a passage out of context. Under these five main points are a few great things that you need to ask yourself while you are studying the Bible. The first is this, and I heard this in a sermon after I'd read the Bible quite a few times. And after hearing this, I applied this lesson, this one particular lesson, and it made the Bible open up like a flower on a spring morning. I'm going to tell you this. You remember this lesson. How does this point to Jesus? You ask yourself as you're reading the Bible, and it will open up passages that you never imagined. How does this point to jesus here's another one how does this point to the overall picture of redemption in other words this picture isn't specifically giving me anything about jesus it must somehow be fitting into the overall picture of redemption that's these verses today in particular you need to take that into that type of a mindset here's another one if it isn't prescriptive and it isn't descriptive then what is it telling me? For example, how would I view the following passage? I'm gonna read you a passage and I want you to tell me how to view this. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, Two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken." All right, this isn't especially descriptive, it's not describing anything, it's not especially prescriptive, it's not telling me to do something. How do I term what I just read? This passage from Ecclesiastes is wisdom, it is giving me wisdom. It's a general guide for living, and it has a point for me to think on, and it includes a metaphor in this particular passage. And there are thousands of other things to know about reading the Bible. And studying the Bible is a lifelong adventure. In addition to wisdom, there are some other types of formats that the Bible uses. Some of them are narratives. You all know the book of Ruth, maybe, or the book of Esther are narratives. What am I supposed to learn from reading these particular narratives? You have poetry, such as in the Psalms. You have legal renderings decisions that are actually written down in human history making a legal decision and those are recorded in the bible you've got historical records you've got genealogies if anybody's ever read the book of chronicles you know that there is genealogy after genealogy after genealogy and you have to say why are these in here every single name that is recorded in this book and there are thousands of them every one of them has a purpose for being in here we have genealogies leading up to the birth of Jesus all of these things we also have prophetic utterances such as Jeremiah standing up in the courtyard of the Lord and saying thus says the Lord he's proclaiming something that the Lord wants the people to know whether it's going to happen immediately whether it's going to happen in the future but we have prophetic utterances in the Bible we have biographical entries we have apocalyptic writings if you know what that means it's like the book of Revelation here comes a black horse It doesn't really mean that it's a black horse, it's symbolizing something else. The rider on the black horse has a pair of scales in his hands and it's saying that famine is coming and they're gonna have to weigh out their food. So you have to understand this type of writing. You have personal letters, you've got drama, you've got all these different types of writings within the Bible and you need to understand them in the context, 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 or you are going to get off on all kinds of useless tangents. So pay attention as you read your Bible. And one more thing, though, you cannot apply these instruction methods for reading your Bible unless you, unless you, unless you read your Bible. All right? So please read your Bible. So let's go on with the line of Cain. And from what I read in the next verse, you will probably understand why I gave you this previous lesson in Bible interpretation. Verse 19 Then Lamech took for himself two wives and the name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was Silah. This is the first recorded case of polygamy in the Bible. And every single commentary that I read, every one of them without fail, denounces it as unnatural and as wicked. But the Bible does not make any such commentary ever within the Bible. And therefore, every single thing that is written in those commentaries is the personal opinion of the scholar, who is writing it and it has no biblical support at all the only thing that we have thus far in the bible to set the pattern for physical relationships between a man and a woman is what it says in chapter 2 verse 24 it says therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh now i can't tell you how many times i have heard pastors and preachers stand up and say that the Bible says marriage is between a man and a woman. And then they qualify it, they say, one man and one woman. Do you know, it never says that. It never says that in the Bible. I want you to know that. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, quotes this exact same verse. And he says, the two shall become one flesh. When he is saying that a man lying with a prostitute becomes one with her. In other words, he is quoting this and applying it to sleeping with a prostitute. Therefore, if he sleeps with 50 prostitutes, he is one flesh with each one of them. Again, if we were to take that he shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh as prescriptive, prescribing something, then we would have to say that the Bible mandates marriage for every person. But it doesn't. And in the same way, just because it says joined to his wife, in no way negates more than one wife. In the law of Moses, allowances are made for men with multiple wives and how they are to be handled and how their children are to be handled and where the birthright comes from and all of these things. Throughout the Old Testament, many people had numerous wives. If you know King Solomon, how many wives did he have? 700, and he had 300 concubines. David, the beloved of the Lord, had lots of wives, and guess what? The Lord gave him many of those wives. Here's what it says in 2 Samuel 12. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. And in the New Testament, Paul restricts only elders and deacons of a congregation, a church body, to a single wife relationship. In other words, he makes no commentary about anybody else in the church, which by default implicitly allows it. Don't get me wrong, though. I am only making a point about how to interpret the Bible. I'm not condoning polygamy in any way, shape, or form. But remember our short lesson in the Bible study. Is this prescriptive? Is this descriptive? Context, context, context. When taken as a whole in the context of the Bible, what Lamech has done by taking two wives is not biblically unacceptable in the context of the Bible. I'm not talking about culturally. One thing that we need to do, one more thing that we need to do when evaluating the Bible may be the most important rule after evaluating the context, and it very well may be the most important rule of all. We need, when we read the Bible, to set aside our personal biases. We need to set aside our likes, our dislikes, and our presuppositions, or what do I think before I read the Bible. You set all of that aside you need to come to the text as a blank slate and determine what the Lord is trying to tell you from those passages. In the case of Lamech, it is not telling us at all about the unsoundness of polygamy. In fact, we have no idea who else in the world at that time had more than one wife. The Bible is completely silent on that issue and on that matter. What it does tell us is that his eyes were set on pleasure and on worldly things anyone looking to have two wives is looking at physical pleasure more than reasonable living. I have one wife right over there and I can tell you it's far, far more than reasonable. The importance of mentioning two wives is not based on the fact that he has two wives. It is based on their names. How do we know this? Because their names are mentioned. Adah and Silla. Throughout the Bible when a name is mentioned it's because it is relevant to that story only one daughter of the daughters of israel is mentioned by name and yet it says in genesis 45 twice that he had daughters meaning more than one the only daughter mentioned is the daughter dinah and that's because she's relevant to the unfolding story which is presented to us the importance of these two particular women and surrounds the meaning of their names and who their sons were and what they did the sons brought about the beginnings of a stable civilization and they became a complete culture even as we know one today here's what it says and Adah bore Jabal he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock his brother's name was Jubal he was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute and as for Tzillah she also bore Tubal Cain an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron and the sister of Tubal Cain was Naama in the birth of sons to these two women both wives of lamech we have every aspect of a material civilization we have the pastoral life for feeding we have music and culture and we have industrialization in this one family and that is what we are reviewing here our modern thinking says that the iron age occurred after the bronze age the early iron age according to archaeologists came about 1200 bc But the bible says in genesis chapter 4 that man was working with iron even before the flood and i want to tell you something i had never considered this never considered this until janice here brought it up in a bible study and that shows you how we take our own presuppositions and our own learning and we insert them into our bible reading because i'm reading the bible and i'm thinking like a secularist and i'm thinking well archaeologists say that Iron production started about 1200 BC, and it only became uh, formalized a little bit later, when in fact the Bible says in Genesis chapter four, before the flood, the Iron Age was already begun. So I can thank Ellie for that. We need to come to the Bible as a completely clear slate and not insert what we want it to say. We need to ask, God, what are you telling to me? Early man was not the Neolithic Neanderthal that modern scientists make them out to be. Instead, they were a highly civilized society, which had formed a noteworthy culture. Adah had a son named Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and had livestock. His brother Jubal was the first of those who played the harp and the flute. The other wife of Lamech was named Silla, and she had a son named Tubal-Cain, who was an instructor in bronze and in iron. Finally, in these verses, it says that Tubal-Cain had a sister. And her name is Na'ama. One of, uh, out of the many people, and I'm sure that there were many more people that came from Cain than the ones that are mentioned here. These are the only ones that are given by name. And of all of them, of all of the people that we've read, these names, the one that may seem the most puzzling is Na'ama. She's mentioned by name, but nothing else is recorded of her. That she'd done anything else, nothing. But her name means, loveliness and that's going to be very important as we study the bible what we can determine is that the people mentioned in the line of Cain after Enoch you've got Cain and then his son Enoch are these Erod, Mahujael, Methushael each of those people is intended to lead us to these names in these few verses Lamech, Adah, Tzillah, Jabal, Jubal, Tubal Cain and Naamah as I said even Mehujael and Methusael maintain the name of God in their name, the name El. And that's the specific Lord or Jehovah. It's just a reference to the unknown God. But after these two people, the names go down a completely different path. And here are the translations of their names. Adah means pleasure. Silla means shadow or to hide. Lamech means captive. Jabal means stream of water. Jubal means river. And Tubal-Cain means you will be brought of Cain. And finally, Naama, as I said, means loveliness. These names, each one individually, are innocuous all by themselves. But when you take them together, they show a worldly outlook. And the name Na'ama in particular is going to have a huge significance when we come to chapter 6 of Genesis. The Schofield reference notes say this, The civilization that we're talking about right here may have been as splendid as Greece or Rome, but the divine judgment is according to the moral state, not the material. The line of Cain and their names reflect people who are in love with the world. This is the lesson that we need to take away from these verses. And I cannot think of anything more appropriate than comparing them to our world today we have music right at our fingertips you know everybody's got one of those ipads and there's all kinds of music there we have every convenience that we could ever desire in the whole world and our eyes can gaze upon physical attractiveness of any sex in any way in ways that we had never imagined even a couple of years ago all of these things that are happening in modern society are following exactly the line of Cain and getting into a worldly outlook and instead of thinking and meditating on the things of God as we should be. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote about the line of Cain in his own writings. And here's what he said. They were exceedingly wicked. They were intolerable in war. They were vehement in robberies. And he says that they acted unjustly and were quick to murder. And we're gonna see how in Genesis chapter six in two weeks from now, these things brought the world into, judgment and unless we turn things around soon and i know this is just a lone voice out here crying and pastors around america are doing it most people aren't listening i can tell you that if this world doesn't change we are going to head right into the day of the lord right into the time of tribulation where the world is going to be judged for rejecting the god and only paying lip service to his glorious name which brings us right to our third thought the sins of the father then lamech said to his wives adan zillah Hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Cain was a murderer, and it's easy to see in our own lives that children will normally follow the pattern of their parents. There are always exceptions, we know this, but this is not one of them. The line of Cain followed the pattern of the father. These two verses, which make up lamech's ode form what is considered perfect hebrew poetry it's broken into pairs and those pairs contain what is called parallelism or the repetition of a thought i'm going to read it to you again and you're going to see this nothing else is recorded like it earlier in the bible and therefore it is certainly the oldest poem ever written in human history let's read it again ada and zillah hear my voice there's the first wives of lamech listen to my speech there's the second For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy sevenfold. Perfect styled Hebrew poetry. Now that we have seen the line of Cain and the family that came from him, we can add poetry to the magnificent list of achievements of Cain's descendants. However, Unlike much of the other poetry that's recorded elsewhere in the Bible, which talk maybe about a relationship with God, or talk about the internal struggles of sin that we have, or possibly higher thoughts contemplating the ways of nature, this poem shows us the worldly outlook of Lamech. Here's what it does. It addresses his two wives. He demands their attention. He took the life of someone who had only wounded him. He implicitly boasts of his strength because he was older than the person he killed and he justifies himself by claiming that he would be avenged. True to the Bible symmetry here, there is a pattern between this murder and the destruction of Babylon in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. Here's what it says there. For true and righteous are your judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her, the blood of his servants shed by her. Vengeance is marked out for Cain, if you remember our sermon last week. He said, if uh, Cain is killed, or if somebody comes and kills me, God says, no. If you're killed, then he will be avenged seven times over. And then in this same chapter, we have Lamech claiming the right to that vengeance. This was in the land east of Eden, and it is in the fourth chapter of the Bible. In the fourth chapter from the end of the Bible, which is chapter 19, God avenges the blood of the saints shed by Babylon, which is exactly in the same place, east of the land of God's choice, which is Israel. What the devil and his seed work in iniquity, God judges and he triumphs over in righteousness. And that brings us to our fourth and final thought today, which is the name of the Lord. We read our text verse today, it was from the Psalms, it says this, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. Quoting that particular verse today has very little to do with the line of Cain. However, the last verses of chapter four return to the godly line of Adam. Adam has a son named Seth, and in that line, there is still the hope of the for the world and of the Lord's presence among the sons of men. Here we go to the last verses of chapter four. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom God killed. After this diversion into the line of Cain, the Bible returns in this verse to the hope of the woman and of all godly people since her. Sometime after the death of Abel, and we don't know how long it was, Eve has another son instead of boastfully claiming that she had acquired a son from the Lord you remember that I have acquired a man with the Lord's help instead of making that boastful type of claim and including the Lord in it she calmly acknowledges that God the creator or Elohim has appointed another son for her his name Seth means appointed and his selection was necessitated by the death of Abel As the Bible notes though, Seth was appointed not by Eve, but by God. God is the one who did the selection and chose the person. She said, instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. If you see what's going on, Eve is saying that God, the creator has replaced what human wickedness took away. It is a veiled reference to the work of Christ who would overrule the wickedness of the devil and she uses the term seed. Let me read it again. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son named Seth, for God has appointed another seed for me. The term Zerah is used, seed. And unlike Cain, she knew, somehow she knew that this would be the promised seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head through her son Seth. Even in the early chapters of Genesis, we can see the concept here of what is known as divine election at work. This is the work from God, it is the work of God, and it is at his prerogative. Man's choices and man's works are left out of the equation. And thus, Seth is God's son by election. And that's very, very important when we get to Genesis chapter six. It will clear up a great deal of misinformation. He was God's choice, he was God's son. Verse 26, the final verse of chapter four. And for Seth, to whom to him also was born a son, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. The last verse in chapter four is a son of the godly line of the Messiah has been born, and the line continues through another son, through Enosh, which means man, man in the mortal sense, a miserable man, someone who can die. And I'm telling you this so that you will pay attention to these names because when we get to chapter five and we go through the list of names in chapter fives, they have an amazing, an amazing significance. And I know that you will be surprised. Everything about them is centered on what they did in the line of Cain and it shows their worldly outlook. But in the line of Seth, it's contrasted. To call on the name of the Lord, as it says here, then men began to call on the name of the Lord is to invoke his name in worship, in praise, in thanksgiving and in prayer. And who is this veiled Lord or Jehovah of the Old Testament? Paul, we have to get to the New Testament to find out, but he explains it very well in the book of Philippians. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of god the father all of these verses are pointing right down the line until we come to jesus christ god revealing himself in human flesh he unites in the womb of mary and he presents himself to the world and i feel pretty confident of most people that you already have a relationship with jesus christ but i don't know everybody's heart here so let me take two minutes and give you a short gospel presentation the bible says that we all have sinned we all know from previous sermons that we didn't have to sin even on our own we sin through adam we inherited adam's sin but individually we have all sinned we told lies we've done things wrong we've broken god's law and the bible says that the wages of sin is death that's what we earn it says but the gift of god is eternal life through jesus christ our lord the wages are what you earn the gift is what you cannot earn just as we saw a couple verses ago god does the work there's nothing we can do to earn it. And it says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And then Paul makes it, oh, ever so difficult for us to understand the gospel message, right? No, he says, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, nobody calls on a dead savior, of course he's alive. If you call on him, he will cleanse you of your sin and he will give you a new life and he'll give you a new direction and a new heart and he will lead you back to the father who sent him to reconcile us to him cain wandered off and he built a fortified town he named it at enoch after his own son after enoch came more men of worldly renown they knew how to work and they knew how to have fun lamech the seventh man down that wicked line had two wives to keep him happy all the time For Mr. Lamech, they bore three sons and a girl who became a settled culture in the Eastern land. Jabal had livestock and Jubal gave music a whirl. Tubal Cain worked in metals, and his sister's looks were grand. Lamech wrote a poem to comfort his two wives after he killed a young man for merely wounding him. This is the first poem ever written in humans' lives, and it shows the wicked effects of the ungodly sin. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, than me even more. But what about that poor guy lying dead at your door? If this was the way things always would be, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But God had something else going on, you see. He had another line of godly men, so don't you cry. God replaced replaced Abel, whom Cain slew in the field, with another son by the name of Seth. Through this son, the holy seed would yield the one to conquer evil. And triumph over death again this godly line brought us son named Enosh and more would follow until would come the king by his precious blood all men could wash and be cleansed from sin and every wicked thing when men call on the name of Jehovah the eternal Lord they were only looking forward to that great king and now we call on Jesus the bearer of the sword the fullness of time has come and to his name we do sing, Jesus, 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 the great and awesome rock, the one who reveals the Father we cannot see. And now we wait as the moments tick and tuck until he returns for his church and blissful eternity. Until that time of renewal, we earnestly wait. Yes, until the time we pass through heaven's pearly gate. When we behold the glory of the King and to the praise of Jesus, we shall ever sing, Hallelujah and amen. Lord God, thank you so much for giving us the story of redemption, which is detailed in the pages of the Bible. Thank you for the gift of your son who has undone every wicked work that we could ever throw out into human history. And he just washes it away if we simply call on the precious blood of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We thank you for that gift. And I pray that if anybody here has never called on Jesus as Lord, that they will reflect on why you've revealed these things to us and then just in their heart call on him and be cleansed from their sin. Thank you, God, for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.